0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Cavener here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer.
1: Michael, how have you been? I have been fine, Gary. It's a beautiful, bright blue sky, sunny day, a bit cold. Do you know what, Gary? I noticed this year, uh, I don't know if it's uh, the same with you, the 1st of April came and went, and I didn't, not only was I not subject to a prank or a joke or a a, f- a foolish japer but I didn't hear of anybody else being or I didn't see anything on the television or the or the the newspapers or anything April foolish do you think are, is that was is that, are we in a funny mood that we're not in the mood for japes and jokes anymore that'd be rather sad Did you have anything done to you or hear of people having things done to them? No,
0: no. Well, I, I think there were many attempts by companies to do so, as is the standard, but uh, I saw nothing. The press council were kind enough to upload the note that Grip had become a member of them the day before April Fool's.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise people would not have believed
0: it. I recommend you go you go onto Twitter and check out their account, Michael, and just go and see the responses to that news from the general uh, activist left.
1: I have already checked out the responses of a number of people, and I'm delighted to see that people... Welcomed the advent of uh, GRIPT as being a, a wonderful war- addition to the Irish news uh, ecology, that it will bring a diversity. And we all know diversity is what everybody wants and craves for, and we need as a culture. So I was. Ver- there was a lot of really positive, friendly people saying, well, you know, I wouldn't agree with them, but, you know, I think they're great guys who are engaged in an honest, good-faith attempt to bring news to the people. I thought that was very positive, didn't you, Gary?
0: The part I thought was most positive, Michael, were the people who were kind enough to say that they were going to submit a flurry of spurious complaints to the press council and we're kind enough to say this in writing.
1: That's always—it's always helpful when people will do that for you. And uh, I suppose I'm, there may have been some screenshots taken of those tweets before they were taken down.
0: But we couldn't possibly comment more on that. Not yet. So we have—we have a bit of news to go through. Uh, but before we do that, Michael, I think we need to speak about the most outrageous moment at the Oscars.
1: Oh, the fact! That, oh, I tell you what, it was. And we, now I'm curious to see if you want. I, I hope you're referring to the fact that Dune won the prize, won the Oscar for best sound. Oh, you're good. Did I get it right? Yeah, you know you actually did. Ha <laughs> ha! That's incredible.
0: It's one of the worst audio mixed films I've I've ever heard. There is a little bit of. Would you like to hear what a spaceship taking off sounds like? Okay. Would you like to hear it while people try and talk over it? I mean, the soundtrack, which also won, they won best soundtrack as well. I think describing it as cliché would be kind. I did reach a point where it was like, oh, here's a shot of someone beginning to look over their shoulder. The chanting <laughs> will start now.
1: <laughs>
0: and every time, just every time, just kept hitting it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is true.
0: To better news, Michael. Which is? so There are reports that uh, Fine Gael have decided that the fact they keep polling at about 20% is bad, and that they would like going into the next election to be polling higher. Now, this, Michael, is a surprisingly rare thought process in Irish politics, but it seems that they have now decided they would do this. According to the Times, uk, Leo Varadkar is now spearing an attempt to win back voters by pushing out radical right-wing ideas, Michael. Like, maybe you shouldn't pay half your income in tax. Well, that's radical and right-wing, all right. But I personally have a bit of a problem with this. And I say this as someone who, you know, historically would have been fairly comfortable voting Fine Gael. right? Because I would mostly vote on economic matters, Michael, and Finnegay were obviously the best party on that. Obviously, yeah. If you don't look at it, you kind of squint, and it keeps moving. Yeah,
1: and uh, not not to be picky, but I would the nineteen uh, ha, eighty-one to eighty-seven, Gard Fitzgerald. Doubles in five years, the external, the national debt. Charlie Hoy comes in and in between 87 and 89 produces the finest government in the history of the state.
0: I'm speaking mostly from before I got involved with politics and I didn't really know a lot about the parties. And you've got to admit, Finnegan are much better at looking like they're going to be reasonable about the, the economics.
1: Okay, yeah. Well, of course, I, I would also admit it's a per- historical personal bias as well. So, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I, I would... They 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 are they talk uh, the talk and they are reported as talking the talk and it, to be fair, Finnafall will historically have been insistent in conceiving of themselves and describing themselves as a party of the centre left.
0: So yeah, when I was younger and you don't pay a lot of attention to things, it it kind of just fit naturally. The problem is is I've got older, Michael, and I've become a lot more aware about politics and I've read a lot more manifestos and things like that. And then I've been able to gauge those manifestos against actual performance. Here's my problem when people talk about Finnegale coming out with sensible right-wing policies, like maybe let's have a tax bracket between nothing and now we're taking half of your income. Yes. And it's, it's this. I don't believe them.
1: Yes. It's a fundamental cheese problem, isn't it? What you're describing is that they are putting some cheese into the trap in order to entice Gary into voting for them. And the problem isn't so much that you don't believe that. The problem is that it's not even real cheese, that they put the cheese out there, but it's not real cheese. And this has a corollary effect, which is the crowding out effect, that Fine get perceived as being the party of the sensible right-wing, centre-right economic policies. And that has a crowding out effect of anybody else who, who might want to come into that space. So they have the fake cheese, but they stop people with real cheese getting into the market because they have the fake cheese. And the problem is, Gary, people keep eating the fake cheese and they don't keep, no, they don't seem to make the connection between eating the fake cheese and feeling sick and not having nice cheese. Like, if we want to take, I mean, okay, let's look at... What's the one with the letters? Oh god not, I keep wanting to say PRSI but it's not PRSI. You know the, the emergency tax. Emergency tax that was introduced. Yes, the USC. That that I think is is an interesting one. Now we were told and this it this was kind of bad, Gary. I mean, this was above average bad, I would say. This was, we were told this was going to be abolished. This was not only going to be abolished, this was a central plank, a central tenant of the economic policy that Fine Gael were pursuing under uh, under the economic guidance of Pascal Dono. Or am I misremembering that completely? No,
0: th- this, I think, is is the most recent thing that sort of made me think that it doesn't matter what Fine Gael says, because they're not going to do it. Because they are fundamentally untrustworthy on these things. Which is a bit of a problem if you're a political party trying to sell things to people.
1: Particularly if you're selling yourself as being the trustworthy guy.
0: Yeah, I mean, at this point we've had over a decade... Of Finnegan making promises and then not keeping those promises, but the Donahue thing, yeah, was a reminder of a time when Finnegan didn't just mislead, but I would say a time where Finnegan and Pascal Donahue personally straight out lied with no hedging around it. And you know, Michael, how hesitant I am to say that someone lied as opposed to misspoke or was wrong.
1: Yes, and I'm <laughs> even more. <laughs> willing to keep away from those famous steps of the high court than you are but i said my memories of recently is it not the case that pascal came out and said he never promised that
0: he did he came out and said he never promised that and then we had the interesting media response where there were a couple of people who it was widely reported that he had said it and then a couple of people like joe.ie pulled up old finnegal statements but i think it was only gripped who went back and i did a fact check of it and i pulled up all of his previous statements and his previous social media statements and it's nearly true to say that pascal who has never said that the usc was temporary and that it should be gotten rid of but there's a brief moment michael where pascal changes his mind and he decides that actually it's totally possible to get rid of it and it was the 2016 election yeah so for the two period of the 2016 election pascal was absolutely clear that the usc was temporary and should be gotten rid of and then before that and after that of the opinion that that was totally unworkable. And now it's gotten to the point of, well, no, I never said that at all. And I I was actually kind of surprised that particularly the Irish Times let him get away with it. Because whatever about, like, taking a soft touch with some of the ministers, that's just not right. It's out and out not correct. And Michael, I, I have some concerns about why it was only the period of the 2016 election where Pascal considered that the USC was uh, something that could be gotten rid of. I just feel it's a bit odd that, you know, what is, was clearly a legitimate change in his mind, Michael, coincided perfectly with Finnegale trying to win more votes. So then I look at that and I think Pascal Donahue, who is a sharp guy, yeah. I would say too sharp a guy to have ever looked at the USC numbers and thought that was workable in 2016, was willing to go out there and say something that I don't think he thought was true, about a taxation issue which is actually quite important to people. And so why would I believe them when they do it now? Because if they're willing to lie about this, and I think 2016 shows that they're not willing to disassemble or kind of edge around it, they're willing to out and out lie to you. Why would I think they're honest now?
1: Yeah, but I suppose what I imagine um, anybody listening to this might well say is, but Gary... Why would you believe any of them about anything? And I'm not saying that with the kind of tired old God, I don't believe politicians. But I would say there is a general fairly high level of disengagement from politicians. Well, we saw, I mean, we saw the opinion in the the trust survey. What was it? uh, 4.6, 46% of people trust politicians. It was less than that, actually, with Donald.
0: That was the average score they got out of 10 from not trusted at all to quite trust it was 4.6.
1: I was surprised. I thought it would be lower than that. I, I have said to you before, I've always enjoyed that moment where when Finnegalers come to me and I, and I love them dearly and they're dear, dear friends. Many, of many, many dear friends. So my best friends are know Anyway, they come to me and they say, oh, Finnefall, out, outrageous and wild and sp- Promises and elect auction politics, Gary. Auction politics. Shocking, shocking. And I said, lads, I remember the Fine Gael Manifesto in 2007. At which point a certain silence will descend if they're old enough themselves to remember the 2007 manifesto. And they will, they will suddenly find that they have to, that busy thing to do that they've forgotten that they need to do now. So why anybody would particularly invest or repose their trust in Phil Gale?
0: I, I will partially explain this as best as I can, Michael. One, I think, you you know, you want to trust the people in control on some level. That there is some level of honesty. And in general, politicians and parties are Pretty careful about lying to you. They will mislead. They will use a mission. They'll obfuscate. The but they actually lie surprisingly rarely. Because if you outright lie, you can get caught up on it. Whereas if you say something where someone has to go, was that true? Well, yes, but. That conversation is already over. No one is following that. And also it wasn't the party. The party did take a position, but it was a politician personally coming out and saying something which was falsifiable.
1: And leaving himself exposed to the possibilities. No, I understand that. I, mean, I remember back in the day, You'd Be Too Young, when uh, Bill Clinton got a blowjob and in the Oval Office and he came out and he looked into the camera and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And I remember at the time having a conversation with an American friend of mine, uh, who was working in Milan and, and saying, well, I, 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 I think it's just, it's some kind of a Republican setup because I don't think he would have so unambiguously, unequivocally stated what he stated because now he set himself up that he has no exit. If he's found out, he's lied and that's him screwed because and that was based on the principle which I think is generally true like you say Gary that they, they will avoid in much, as much as they can whatever about a party manifesto which is kind of a it's a, a disembodied thing it's an abstract statement you can interpret it how you like. and nobody individually is responsible for a, a single politician to come out look in the camera and say I want to abolish the USC that's they they don't want they don't want to do that they don't want to put themselves in that position where they can be personally exploded. That's also who said it. Pascal is
0: not you know, amongst the uh, the least of the Finnegall TDs, and he was also clearly someone with an upward trajectory. So why would you create a problem like this for yourself later? So all of that kind of went into it, and the fact that he would not only come out and say it when it appears clear he never believed it but also then later try and say that he had never said it and not have that corrected by the Irish media really at all
1: that really was weird genuinely weird.
0: makes me think that anything Fine Gael comes out with one will not be checked to see if it's true or not and two if some of their best people are willing to just come out and just straight to your face bullshit you why would you believe anything they say I mean, it is is—it is actually really quite valuable to read Parity's old manifestos just to see what they've said they'll do that they won't do. And then you get a, oh, maybe Labour stopped them from doing it.
1: <laughs> As a friend of my, uh, like I said, bigger boys came along and made me do it.
0: Here's a question for you, Michael, on, on the economics of it. Let's take the, the um, carbon taxes. Do you think Finnegale or Sinn Féin are more likely to abolish them, or at least hold off on them for a while?
1: Uh, Sinn Féin, obviously. I mean, Sinn Féin, because Sinn Féin u- understands that, if nothing else there is a larger proportion of Sinn Fein voters that are going to be more disproportionately hit by carbon taxes.
0: Is that a bit weird though? That your know, party which is one of the most left-wing in the state, on paper anyway, is more likely to do what would be considered a fairly right-wing economic move than the party which is considered to be
1: on the right economically or used to be. I don't think there's actually any real, because it, it, I think you could explain it away by motivation or intention. The intention of Sinn Féin, the reason why Sinn Féin isn't going to impose carbon taxes isn't for a philosophical position on the nation. Although, we should maybe point out parenthetically here that an interesting factoid, when you look at the breakdown of the, the opinion poll that was contained in the exit polling after the last general election, right? One of the questions that was asked, and we've referred to this before, one of the questions that was asked in that was... In a situation where the government had a certain amount of surplus which it could dispose of, uh, how would you want it to be spent? Would you like it to be spent on greater spending on public services or used uh, to cut uh, taxes? Every single party had more voters uh, who said they would like it spent on increasing public services uh, rather than on tax cuts, except the party where the most voters wanted it on a tax cut was Sinn Féin. Not Fine Gael voters, but Sinn Féin voters. More Sinn Féin than any other, proportionately, wanted to see a tax cut. So, number one, Sinn Féin may be simply reflecting the interests of its voters, and it may be aware of where its voters are. And secondly, rather than doing it for a philosophical reason, it may be doing it because of a very decent reason, Gary. They know that all of these taxes that Finnegal has introduced, the carbon tax, the, the, the increase, the costs in every way on, on, uh, Private vehicle ownership, the alcohol taxes—these are disproportionately going to affect poor people. And as a party of the left, they may—they may, they see themselves maybe as advocates for people who are poor or poorer, and therefore they want to mitigate the effects.
0: There was a um a joke story that you mentioned on the show long time ago, I think, at this point. And it was a question of um, who you would rather play poker with. A group of moral philosophers whose mother had never told them that it was wrong to lie. Or a group of degenerate gamblers and alcoholics whose mother had told them it was wrong to lie. Mm-hmm. I kind of get that feeling with Fine Gael versus Sinn Féin. <laughs> yeah. I just don't believe Fine Gael when they say things anymore. Sinn Féin wouldn't say that I have the greatest faith in them doing what they've said, but it's now higher than Fine because I think that they think there is a reason to do this and it can benefit us. Whereas Fine Gael are making political choices that, to me Michael, don't seem to make any sense. Well they don't seem to make any sense from the stance of politics, a lot of it seems to be this is now the commonly accepted way to do things, so we're just going to replicate that without uh, without doing anything, they just do things. Because they seem like the respectable thing to do.
1: Well, yes, I think that is actually not just the nub of the problem with Finnegan. I think that's a wider problem in Irish politics. And I think there's a weird paradox with Sinn Fein. I think that there's a sense that Sinn Fein has to become more normal uh, and become more like other political parties before it can actually be admitted into a position where it might actually form a government. And yet there is part of me, and I'm not a Sinn Fein voter, Gary, at least not yet, which kinda laments that uh, the I'm reading at the moment I, I was saying I think to before, I don't know if I mentioned it off, I'm reading a book by Peter Mayer called Ru- Ruling the Void. And it's a book you mentioned to me as far as I was unaware of it and I was unaware of Peter Mayer actually which I, which is, I should have been aware of him he is a prom, he's Irish for a start not many international level Irish thinkers he was a lefty but the first line of his book is the age of party democracy has passed now I'm reading it and so far I'm very impressed with it as a piece of analysis and one of the problems we have in Irish politics and this is not just in Irish politics and is increasing similarity across the board of political parties or at least the upper levels of political parties and you use the word respectability Gary, and i think that's one of the key problems that what is considered to be respectable doable possible that overton window of morality is shared to a massive degree across i would say between if you look at the the, the the membership, the parliamentary party membership of the Social Democrats, the Labour Party, the, the Greens, Philly Gale, Le, uh, Fianna Fáil, all that, I will exclude from this, say, the people before profit, the extreme end to the left, and some and in the independents. But would you not think, Gary, that there, the crossover, the cultural-political crossover between those parties would be really far more significant now than it certainly would have been, say, twenty years ago, and people would perceive it to be. Yeah, I mean, the old the, the major
0: difference between Finnegan and Finnifal, for instance, was always cultural. Even when they agreed on things, they agreed for different reasons. They were going to handle it differently, and they were just different people. And increasingly, that's not the case.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that's true.
0: I mean, what you said on Sinn Fein and um, respectability and, and them trying to become more respectable, I think that's probably the major challenge the party is going to face over the next while. It's starting to engage with civil servants, it's starting to engage with NGOs, because those groups are now willing to deal
1: with them. And there's but, the, but they should be very, very careful. In the weird likelihood, the weird unlikely that anybody from Shilvere might listen to either of us, I would say, beware of those particular gifts borne by Greeks. Look inside those horses because those NGOs have captured Finetfall, Finnegale. Le- well, I don't know about the captured labour of labouring, you know, is is, is is kind of the NGO borg, but the, the, there's a great deal of capturing going on out there and they need to be very worried about that. We've
0: started to see policy shifts and kind of cultural shifts internally in parts of Sinn Fein that seem to reflect their new contact with NGOs. And yeah, I think you're right. The NGOs ultimately will try and hollow out Sinn Fein and wear it like a cheap suit which is what they've done with large parts of the policy formation of Fine and Fine Gael. But it hasn't helped Fine Gael and Fine Fáil, and it won't help Sinn Féin. Also, Sinn Féin have gotten to where they are largely without them. But there is a balance there.
1: Yeah, By the way, for the taxpayer, that suit is not cheap.
0: Well, no, not at all. But there is a balance there. You want to get respectable enough that you can get elected. But if you let these people in fully, it's not going to end well. And we already know Sinn Féin has a massive internal issue with their voter types, because they now have so many people inside them. And you have the older type who are much more conservative, much more working class, and you now have this new generation of progressive kind of people. And the more you lean to that, the more you risk splitting your own party. But I I would have more faith in the ability of Sinn Féin to recognise that than I do in the ability of Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil to stop it. I suppose we may as well go on to the actual polls itself, Michael.
1: Yeah, it's... It's not much of an exciting poll, is it?
0: Well, Michael, it's a fascinating poll, because it's our first poll since Ivana Batchik became the leader of Labour.
1: And Labour are up by 25%.
0: We were talking about Ivana Batchik's last um, first interview as leader, and how she couldn't explain where she was when the decision was made by the Labour TV's (laughs) to shank (laughs) Alan Kelly. Yeah, that was good. And I I don't know if you've seen her later, Michael, but she's walking around going, well, I never expected to be leader. Maybe she said wanted, but I never thought I'd be leader. And then you go back to those questions where she couldn't or wouldn't say if she was in the same room where the decision to take out Kelly was made. Yeah. Which seems a bit odd if you say, "But I never wanted to be leader, but no, I'm not going to tell you if I was there when the decision to make me leader
1: was made. Well, you know the way it is, Gary, sometimes you're in a room and you just can't remember being in a room and it could have been... Days, even weeks ago, and I know myself, I mean, all of the different rooms I've been in in the last month, Gary. I mean, I've been in the kitchen, I've been in the sitting room, I've been in the bedroom, I've been in the study, I've been in other people's houses, and they have rooms as well. Ah, it's just a nightmare trying to remember all the rooms. You
0: get questions like, what did they threaten to break on Aidan O'Reardon's body to keep him out of the race?
1: <laughs> Were you there
0: for that? Were you holding the bat?
1: What happened? <laughs> Are you a bat? I imagined a large bottle of champagne. There you go.
0: So the, the actual polling. So Labour's bounce. Uh, four plus one well,
1: percent. I said 25 percent. That's actually an increase of 33 percent.
0: So Sinn Féin, 33 plus two. Finnegale 22 plus one. Fianna Fáil, 18 minus two. Social Democrats, six, no change. Labour Party, four plus one. Green Party, three minus one. AIM2, three plus one. People for Profit Solidarity, 2 minus 2. And the Independents, 10 plus 1. That is the Sunday Independent poll that is Ireland Thinks, I believe. So aim 2. Nearly the size of the Labour Party.
1: Do you know what? 1 TD, very, I would say, not a massive amount of coverage. Go to be fair, I mean, you do see Padra on on RTE and you hear him on the radio, on RTE radio. I think the RTE are giving a decent check. I know lots of people out there who support him Agree with that, but I think considering, he's not... but then again, he's good value. He's a good performer, powder. He's a good TV presence. He knows he will give you a bit of value, and he'll always have something slightly interesting to say, which is not the, necessarily the case with a lot of them. So I think I mean for into third three percent, Gary. Three percent is if they could get if they. But this way, sir, if they could, if they could get three percent coming out the other end of a general election, they would be very happy indeed. Well,
0: three percent of first preferences, you get the funding. With that, you'll get two, three TDs, depending on how it's split. I mean, at that point, you might actually... The problem is when you've one TD, you're just on the edge of a viable party constantly. Whereas at the point you've got three, you can kind of relax a bit. You're probably going to last through the
1: next election. They sh- if they're on 3%, they really should be looking at getting uh, local candidates elected in the councils. And that's the, that, to me, I've always believed that that is the crux of... The problem: A new party you have to start at the county council and the town council. Not so many town councils these days, after Big Phil did his axing job, but you know what I mean. On the other hand, the creation of the larger boroughs has given you more, it, it made it easier for smaller parties to get involved uh, at county level. Now, as we've talked about before, I, I always felt that was one of the mistakes that Renewal made at the very, very beginning: that they didn't contest locals because I think that's where it starts if you get decent candidates in at the local level that ge- and you you give it you, you give yourself an opportunity for a, 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 to take doll seats over time without having to rely on some kind of passing issue or celebrity candidate you can just you can build your vote.
0: anyway so there's a tool article too
1: large uh-huh.
0: Fintan O'Toole, and I think that this is my understanding of how Fintan O'Toole is successful, Fintan O'Toole comes out with the ideas that respectable people are either going to have shortly or have at the minute, but cannot think of a way to phrase in a respectable way.
1: I now remember why I was telling you that Bob Newhart joke before. Yeah, Fintan's great capacity is to work out on Wednesday, what other respectable middle-class bourgeois types will be thinking on Saturday. He doesn't have to be very high, far ahead of him, but he's he he around three days, it's enough.
0: So, Fintan O'Toole's article is, Refugee crisis cannot be treated as opportunity to show how lovely Ireland is. Yeah. We are fluent in high-minded idealism. Making it real is another story. And the entire article is about Ukrainian refugees and whether or not we are capable of taking in the amount of refugees that we've said and the technicalities of it, the actual planning of it, which, Michael, you may remember was a point being made by the far right about two weeks ago.
1: The nasty, horrible people, yes. That there's a difference
0: between saying you can do this and being able to do it, given that you're talking about, you know, 200,000 is the population of Cork. And how are we going to do that? And of course, Michael, we were told, well, we need to do it, which is one of those interesting things, needing to do it, Doesn't remove the requirement for you to be able to actually do it. Unless we're saying, let's build a tent city.
1: Well, yeah, what's the point? We're going to bring these unfortunate people, God knows they are unfortunate people, over here. And then what are we going to do with them? I mean, we're going to have to put, we're going to have to give them somewhere to live. We're going to have to organize some way that these people will have food to eat and water to wash in, they're going to bring their children with them. So their children are presumably going to have to go to schools and they're going to have to be able to move around the country. We're not going to drop 200,000 people into the couple of cities that actually have public transport where they can get a bus. So rather than imagining that there are going to be Ukrainian children walking six miles to go to school in northern Donegal, and there are worse places you could do that. But we're going to have to organise some kind of system where they can exist in the country. Uh, and there's a, it's a reasonable, don't ask, well, have we got the capacity to do that?
0: I just want to mention, because Fintan is, is not always a good bellwether, but he is a lot of the time. And... If you remember, Michael, when this started, certain people, I think I'm thinking of myself here, uh, but I like to, you know, protect myself with the other people may have also said it, were making points about if you just do things in the high of an emotional rush, in the immediate aftermath of something, that doesn't mean you can actually do those things. And often you're making it worse because you're telling people that you can do something that you actually can't. And then you just leave everyone in the lurch. So there may be a somewhat of a, um, a reconsidering uh, of the practical limitations of what we can do, which is not to say we shouldn't do anything, Michael. I'm sure there's quite a lot we can do. It's perhaps we should not say things without thinking. Is that actually possible?
1: According to the president, I mean, the president of uh, Ukraine gave us a bit of a backhander.
0: No, no, Michael, you want to see a backhander? I think it's in the Business Post today. Uh, could be the Times. There's an interview with the Ukrainian ambassador and. They, make, they, they, they respond to President Higgins' uh, wonderful talk about the need for peace in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe the exact phrasing is, we were a neutral country too, until we were invaded. <laughs> On the, the Ukraine thing, I think the interesting thing at the minute, the thing that will actually have a surprising amount of impact, is there are photos coming out of uh, some of the cities where the russians have moved back and you're seeing photos of uh, people dumped in wells people with their hands tied behind their back shot in the back of the head
1: awesome horrific photos i mean we always we have to maintain to some degree a skeptical position regarding these things unless we until we know for certain one way or the other but if these things are tr- these pictures are true these people being bound and and uh, I was going to say executed, I prefer to say murdered. Then this is, this is pretty horrific.
0: Yeah. And, and there's talk of mass graves. There's talk of those things. Now, obviously, as you said, Michael, we have to be skeptical. This may not turn out to be the truth, but we've seen an immediate reaction to these reports from fairly high level people that is virulently against the Russians on this which is not surprising. And I think if those photos can be verified, a lot of the push we're currently seeing for things that may not come together like a gas buying cartel to cut out Russia is going to become a lot more uh, possible or a lot more likely to come to fruition if these photos turn out to be legitimate. And I think that is going to be the um one of the primary things to see over the next week if they can be verified and particularly the numbers. Now I will say this Michael I've seen a number of these photos, and I have a particular interest in conflict journalism. There are certain armies that have, shall we say, a higher tendency than others to engage in this sort of behavior. But what's interesting is that different armies tend to engage in it in different ways. So there are particular armies where if you are going to be executed like this, they will execute you in particular ways. Yeah. And the way these people were executed fits with some of what we saw, particularly in some of the um, Soviet Conflicts.
1: Well, they're being shot in the back of the head, aren't they?
0: They're being, yeah, they're being bound and shot in the back of the head and then dumped into barrels and things.
1: I'm saying I'm not saying this in any sound flippant way, but that is culturally the way this has been done in Russia. I mean, back in the days of Stalin, it was uh, a pistol to the back of the head. I mean, that was the way it was done. And, it was, and that was done in massive numbers at high speed. And it was done day in and day out. It was done in private houses. It was done... In fields, it was done in battlefields for anybody who was uh, running away if they weren't actually put into a punishment regiment and sent to to the German machine guns. So, yeah, culturally, there's also something, Gary, is there not something atavistically horrifying about associating the words like mass graves and and Ukraine? It's not that long ago that that kind of thing happened. On a massive scale in this country we i i have heard people discount just automatically oh this is all nonsense it's a propaganda this wouldn't be happening blah blah i i'm not saying that it isn't propaganda i'm not saying that it is definitely happening but the, the notion that that it is on the face of it, ridiculous or impossible, is just silly.
0: No, the, the Russian army has engaged in practices like this before, and actually relatively recently. However, it's also known that they've engaged in these practices, and the way they tend to go about it uh, is also known. Anyone who has looked at Russian army, both modern and true Soviet, is going to be able to replicate their methods of execution. So because of that, there is obviously the concern that this is fake. However, if it can be verified, uh, it's going to be a real problem for Russia. Ukraine is just not. It's different doing it to Ukrainians than the Georgians, for instance or is going to at least be treated as differently. So I would imagine nearly every major world uh, news organization in the world is trying to be the person who verifies that. By the time this podcast goes out, maybe they will have verified it, or they'll have shown to be fakes. But uh, I think if that's verified, politically, a lot of stuff is going to happen very quickly that up to this point was considered impossible.
1: Yes, and that's not a pretty prospect for any of us, is it?
0: Weirdly enough, on this on this subject... Of um, executing you know, mass executions and things like that, it's actually quite interesting. Like there are people I know who can just by looking at like a mass gravesite tell you what army was responsible for it because they use they'll do they'll take different steps they'll bury people differently they'll bind them differently they'll execute them differently.
1: It's a, it's like almost a form of of military archaeology, isn't it?
0: It is because they, a lot of the time this is just you know. This is just things that units have picked up over time and then it kind of diffuses through the army. So you you tend to stick to similar things because that's just what you do. Like in Africa, you see a lot of more use of um melee weapons to finish off civilians, bound civilians. You don't tend to see that in um you know kind of European you mean like
1: edge edge weapons? Yeah,
0: like machetes, knives, axes, things like that. I remember
1: uh, a journalist, an Irish journalist, I think it was, talking one the most horrific, chilling things you could imagine, talking about uh, uh, the days preceding the genocide in Rwanda. And he talked about and I'm going to sound sceptical if it were true, and I, I think it was. And the night before, he said one of the things, wherever he was, that you could hear in the air... Sound of the machetes being sharpened. The he talked. I think he talked about the, the high whine of the blades being sharpened. There were so many of them across getting ready. I just, Jesus, that's scary. And they, and they killed a million people, Gary, more than a million people, went, basically with machetes.
0: Conflict journalists are an interesting group of people, um, both psychologically and um, just due to the amount of wartime they have. Like the average soldier will serve a fairly limited time in combat i mean lots of soldiers are never going to see combat because they will be they won't be um combat troops but the average like the average conflict journalist i think spends 15 years in conflict zones over the course of their career and there have been some really interesting talks given by conflict journalists i think it was the the um chief foreign foreign correspondent for the spectator who said that By the time they were a couple of years into it, they would be embedded with, you know, American troops or whatever, and they would be fired upon. And the foreign correspondent would would react just calmly, where the soldiers around them would freak out because they'd never been shot at before. And this person, they realized over the course of their life, had built up just so much more combat time than nearly any soldier they ever met.
1: One of the I think is really interesting as well. If you talk about culture, you know the way armies have cultural things. One of the things I find fascinating, and say particularly when there's a, a conflict or a war on, is I, I I always like to try and find alternative news, just not just American or English news uh, sources. Not that there's anything wrong with them. I mean, Many of them are very very good indeed, but also say to the, the the French. I mean, the French have a long tradition of war journalists or conflict journalists as well, and they do. But they do it the slightly different way. The Italians, the Spanish, you know, they all have their own particular way of doing things, and they come with a slightly different perspective and a slightly different cultural pro, uh, approach to the thing, which would bring out different sides of a conflict and different aspects of it. And it it makes to the extent I mean, it's the, the the oldest cliche. In, in any of these things that the first vic, the, what is the first victim of war is the truth. We always have you always have to have the, the front of your mind that when someone is telling you something that's happening in a war, the first thing is to question well how would they know? because I mean, we know from history that very often the guys who are running the wars don't know what's happening, let alone the guy who was trying to report on it. but also what are what are the interests that they're serving. but after that you have to take a certain punt. But it's really interesting to see the different, the different slants and aspects and approaches that you get from different culture, different cultures, and when they're talking about these things. But they are all after that. I knew an American who had been involved, an American uh, chap who had been involved in a lot of conflict reporting, and was taking a bit of a break, doing stuff fun, something ridiculous like fashion reporting in Milan. I can't remember what the hell it was, but I remember thinking that is a weird jump. But himself and he the others, they were different people, and it must have a certain effect on you. Seeing that much violence.
0: There is, there's very little research on this, um, because conflict journalists don't tend to want to engage in research on this. Uh, Historically, it's been quite interesting in that conflict journalists display traits of PTSD at levels significantly above both the general population and other journalists. Yeah. But I think it's something like, it's been a while since I looked at the research on this, and I I wasn't expecting to talk about it now, so I might be off on this. But I believe somewhere in the region of 80 to 85% of conflict journalists have no problems. Like no PTSD, no issues with recurrent nightmares, which is generally a sign of PTSD, uh, no emotional disturbances, which is very weird for people who spend that long in combat. Because you're looking at people who will spend multiple of the amount of time in combat a professional soldier would but i think historically what's happened michael is it's been a se- it's, it's been a self-selecting group so there are certain people who go into conflict journalism and they tend to have very high levels of resilience because otherwise you're not going to go into it and if you go into it you're not going to last very long.
1: That, yeah, okay. I think they're, they're probably. I'm sure. I'm sure there's truth to that. But on the other hand, I remember talking to a, a professor of psychiatry who had written a book on the treatment of what was then called shell shock in the Richmond Hospital in Dublin in the in the First World War. And we're talking, and one of the points he made is that it turns out that human beings have an incredible level of psychological resilience and the capacity to self heal, even if you've been exposed to really the most horrible. Horrible things is remarkable, and he said that very often. Actually, the most important thing a psychiatrist or or psychologist can do with somebody who's been through a terrible experience is to do nothing. You wait until people actually seek out help, because actually getting involved and certainly getting involved in sort of prodding around and poking around the psyche in talk therapies and for many of these people can actually be damaging. But if you think of it, Gary, if you were in, say, you were in the trenches, like on in on the, east, the Western Front for four years. And what you were exposed to, the sights that you saw, and the conditions you lived in, what re- I find remarkable is that they all didn't go mad. But actually, the number of them that had ended up w- w- with shell shock, the number of them that ended up incapacitated or with long-term problems, was in a sense remarkably small. Because whether for good or for ill, I mean, you have to we have to imagine for good the capacity that human beings have to live in extreme and horrible conditions. It's really remarkable. I mean. Look at the experience of people who were in concentration camps and work camps and extermination camps in, German, in, in in Europe during the Second World War. And yet the capacity that so many of those people had to survive and thrive in the period after the war. I mean, you'd imagine, I mean, it, on the face of it, you you'd think, God, why didn't they all just kill themselves? Why was I mean, surely this would make you suicidal. And yet it doesn't. We are at, at least notionally at peace in this little island of ours, and it is a lovely sunny day. It may be a bit chilly, but I would say to the, our dear listener to get out, put your jumper on and go for a walk on the beach and enjoy the fact that we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. So we will be back on Sunday with the help of the, the, the divine cosmic force. Uh, other than then, mind yourselves. Bye-bye. All the best.